welcome back to Armor. I brought a friend, Caroline. Yay! <laughs> I brought my friend Joe, and he discovers antibiotics. And this is relevant because Armor is an outreach organization that raises awareness about antibiotic resistance. So, Joe, I thought it would be fitting for you to sort of introduce yourself and give your summary of what antibiotic resistance is, because I'm pretty sure our listeners are tired of hearing me and Caroline say the same pitch every time. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, I'm Joe Villanueva. Hello. Um, so for me, I guess antibiotic resistance is something that happens when a germ like a bacteria or a fungi develop the ability to beat our drugs that are designed to kill them. Um, and that means that germs that can't be killed uh, will continue to grow and then we have our antibiotic resistance uh, that develops. And then you die. <laughs> and then and you, you die, yeah, infection. eventually. <laughs> Yeah, it's a huge issue that's going to be way, way worse if we continue to do what we're doing. Absolutely. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of everything, uh, Joe, you should tell us about yourself. Where are you from? Why did you choose this field? What's your story? (laughs) Uh, So I um, was born and raised in the foothill of the Sandia Mountains in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, It's an absolutely beautiful place to grow up. It was something that I... You know, really love doing. You might know it from shows like Breaking Bad or just in general. A lot of movies have been featured in New Mexico and Albuquerque. Um, I guess how I got to where I am is a bit more circuitous. Uh, in high school, I was really about being a doctor of like a medicine doctor. I was an EMT for a little bit and then quickly realized like that's a horrible thing for me. I can't deal with people. It's really bad. So I was like, all right, what else can I do? And so I went to the University of New Mexico, which was a great experience for me. I uh, went in for the first few years without much of an idea of what I was doing uh, until I hit organic chemistry, where it was like, for most people, they think of that as a weed out class. It's somewhat difficult for a lot of people. But for me, I excelled extremely well. Uh, I was the only student to earn an A plus in that course. Oh, wow. Uh, I did very, very well. And it was something for me that's like really actually solidified science for me. Um, So that's where I like got my start in a way because the professor of that course was like, okay, you're obviously really good at this. Let's try you in a research realm. And his wife was actually working with bacteria um, in the University of New Mexico looking at enzyme kinetics and things. So I interviewed with her, and then she was like, actually, we don't have a position. What? So I went to the guy next door. <laughs> yeah. So I went to the guy next door uh, who is working on antimicrobial discovery platforms. So they are uh, looking at uh, specific gene segments and trying to find um, different antimicrobials that have the potential to be antimicrobials, specifically looking at cave bacteria. So it's like a super competitive environment because there's really limited nutrients available. So the idea is that the bacteria within those environments have to compete really hard and kill each other to be able to thrive. Um, So the idea then was for us to get those DNA sequences, then analyze those through these computer softwares that were being developed, and then express those either exogenously or endogenously um, and move forward. So that's how I got into this antimicrobial space. And then since then, I've been just like really interested more in like how bacteria kill things as opposed to the other way around. And I think that really gives me a nice perspective in how um, I approach my antimicrobial discovery. But you're still looking for new antibiotics. You've just like shifted, you've like flipped the perspective. 
Yes, exactly. So for me, I really love seeing specific, I guess we can get into what I do is so I work with Salmonella typhimerium, uh, which is a huge pathogen, not necessarily in America, but in around the world, mainly the Pacific Islands. Is that a uh, gut like pathogen? Where, yes, it's a gut pathogen that will cause uh, typhoid fever and just typhoid-associated issues. Uh, but typhimerium, what I study, will give a typhoid-like infection to mice. So it's a little bit safer for us to work with, but still has most of the genetics that the typhi, or the ones that cause typhoid, would be. Um, so I guess that's where where I'm at now is studying that pathogen from the pathogenesis end, but looking for new antimicrobials. So seeing how they disrupt that infection and how they, uh, the antimicrobials that I have disrupt Salmonella's infection and how that uh, can best take place. So how does that, how does that link up to when you are looking at like specific genes and seeing what had the potential to be an antimicrobial? So I guess the connection is the initial discovery platform. So the way I've looked at it so far is like my career has been like initial discovery to now mechanism discovery. So it's just that one level up. So in uh, the Melanson lab, which is where I was in the University of New Mexico, uh, the idea was to have these different gene segments um, and then pull them out of that bacteria and then put them into an E. coli or express them and isolate them. Um, so it was just like the initial discovery platform mm -hmm. to just find compounds that have the potential to kill, not necessarily in a better way. And then now in my PhD research, I've gone up one level. Now we have these antimicrobials. Now how do we, or how do I understand how they work? Like their actual molecular target and how that works, not only in killing the bacteria, but also how that works in the larger context of infection. So how does it work in the larger context of infection? Because we're out here like Ooh. spouting constantly about like your microbiome is like the most important ecosystem in your body. You must preserve it at all costs and antibiotics like annihilate it. So can you elaborate more on how that impacts the rest of the ecosystem? So I guess in terms of your, I agree with that completely. Your cool. microbiome <laughs> is, is yeah, absolutely necessary. But this is what happens when your microbiome breaks down and there's an imbalance in your microbes. So with salmonella and a host of different other pathogens, um, they can go into this intracellular state, meaning that they penetrate into your cells. So there are cells that are uh, your innate immune system, like macrophages, dendritic cells, are designed to find these bacteria and eliminate them. It's a great thing. If you don't have that defense, you're done, like dead on arrival sort of thing. But with these salmonella, they have this really cool ability to enter into the cell and then create their own little niche where they then proliferate within that, explode the cell, and then get into other cells and do this over and over again. Uh, and without, if your gut microbiome's in place, this isn't much of an issue. You'll be able to clear it. You won't get that many. But say you like went to a restaurant with poor hygiene or something and they end up giving it to you. It's sort of a oral fecal route is what it's called. Uh, yeah, gross, gross. Love that. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it is. Uh, it's either that or it's like in, like what we've seen in the news where it's like your uh, vegetables were washed with water that was contaminated with food or contaminated with salmonella that then ends up in the leaves of whatever and then you eat that. So it's still 
roundabout oral fecal route, which is still nice. gross, but <laughs> yeah, still gross for sure. <laughs> so when that, true. yeah, I mean, exactly, where it's just like, oh, it's still gross. It's still gross thinking about how it ends up in you. But right. ideally, your microbiome would take care of it, right? If you have a nice healthy balance of it but if you and don't that's why fecal transplants are good right there's good oral fecal and bad oral fecal <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so it's one of those where it's like when it's out of balance these salmonella can really get at that and usually you just have diarrhea and it's not that bad you tend to clear it but as we've talked about with antimicrobial resistance when you gain those microbiome or gain those bacteria that have these resistance it's really tough to clear and that's why in uh, more developing countries and I, like areas that have just a lot of endemic resistance, it's going to be a lot bigger of an issue. Um, sorry, I sort of lost where I was going with that. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think we went in a good direction. I'm actually, I'm actually curious now because you were, I, I stalked your website prior to this. I did my homework. Um, and your lab's website says that it specializes in creative early stage antibiotic discovery. And so I wanted you to sort of dig into that. And I guess that's kind of what I was going towards when I asked, like, what is the linking factor between how you did antibiotic research in undergrad versus how you do it now? What about it is creative? And more specifically, how does that differ from like what pharmaceutical companies were doing, for example, when they were looking for antibiotics? So I guess that sort of brings up the, uh, just the ideas of what's, I guess, the, the I don't know how to say this, the, the poor ability for pharmaceutical industries to go after these antimicrobials just in general. Um, so I'm sure you may have talked about this at some point. But I feel the pharmaceutical... like we touched on it briefly, but we haven't done, we've wanted to do a full episode on like why pharmaceutical companies are so ill-equipped for discovering antibiotics. So I give you, I, I take mean, I charge, can tell you about take it. charge, go for it, yes. Okay, cool, because this is like a, a big thing, and I think about it often, where it's just... <laughs> Us too. Because <laughs> it's just like, it's a horrible business model, antimicrobials in general. It's, you have every government agency, every governing body of every industry, right? From fuel production, agriculture production, uh, just tons of things use antimicrobials. And it's like you have every government agency saying, don't use this product. So if I'm someone who's making this product, why would I want to do that? Not only that, but the cost of them, you have to have an extremely low cost per what it's going to take to put out there. So like, if I'm a pharmaceutical company, I'm in the business of making money overall. And my tool is drugs. So it's like, I'm either going to use do what they're doing now, where it's like they're doing very specific treatments for very hard to cure diseases, like ALS, cancer. And um, lifelong, those lo like long-term diseases. Right, and things that you'll need that for. So it'll be very specific, very niche. After all, Big Pharma is uh, in business, and this business exists to make money, and they use drugs as their tool to make that money. So when the system becomes, how do you make money while making drugs, I think you look to create for two things. The first being a high demand product like statins that help you lower your cholesterol and have been the number one prescribed drug for some time. Uh, but also you look to create drugs that are for specific treatments like cancer, diabetes, autoimmune diseases that people can't live without. So you can price those drugs very high. Uh, and antibiotics are neither of those things. They are not in high demand, uh, and they are cheap to purchase. 
I think on top of that, the demand is also made less by every governing body uh, across industry and governments uh, are trying to limit the use of antibiotics given the current antibiotic resistant crisis that we're facing. So I think it adds up to a poor business model. The pharmaceutical companies will waste their money on this R&D and trials that will cost them about a billion dollars uh, when all is said and done. And even if this new antimicrobial is the best one out there, its use will be highly discouraged because of this uh, antimicrobial resistance. Um, so on top of those things, it's difficult to price uh, this drug such that the pharmaceutical companies will recoup that initial input cost uh, while still main being competitive uh, with other non-patent antimicrobials. So to me, until resistance is pervasive and impacts a much larger percentage of the medical field, I think Big Pharma has left the table uh, and will only come back when there is enough money to be made. I'm really curious about if you've had any like big successes in your research. And I know that we're looking at PhD level, but did you find one that you were like, if this molecule made it to market, it would change the antibiotic game? So uh, I wish I could say that, but it's, I, I, I'm not that naive, I suppose. <laughs> Where I, I, I know what it takes to get a drug to market, just like I've gone to so many different industry talks that I know it's not possible, at least for these molecules. But I think the ones that I'm working on are actually really great scaffolds for exactly that. I don't think they're perfect by any means, but I think with chemical modifications, essentially, to make them less toxic and a little bit more soluble, I think these drugs could be huge, um, especially the ones that I'm working with. I think, um, yeah, I think with some tuning of them, I think they could move forward because, yes, I can tell you about that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I guess what I think is really cool is sort of what I was talking about earlier of thinking about how the pathogen attacks the human, I think really helps me think about how my drug interrupts that. So I have this compound I'm working with, JV1. It's a fun name for it. It's just the, the, the first one that I'm working with. Um, that it, for what we think, it's, it interacts with cardiolipin, which isn't necessarily specific to bacteria, but we think what it does is it works well in the biological context, meaning that when salmonella is infecting, uh, so I guess, wait, I'll start that over. Um, <laughs> so JV1 has these really cool chemi chemical characteristics where it is lysosomally trapped, which uh, happens a lot in cancer drugs, which is in cancer, it's a really bad thing because your drugs are uh, trapped within the lysosome and aren't going to the cells that you want them to go to. But for us, this is a great thing because salmonella uses the host lysosome as part of its bacterial infection. So it, salmonella needs to be acidified in order to express many of its virulence factors to even begin these infections. And JV1 is lysosomally trapped. So essentially we've set a trap for these bacteria where these JV1 is within the lysosome. Salmonella has to come into contact with this lysosome or at least become acidified. Uh, so then that these compounds essentially experience a, a 
higher concentration of JV1 where it then disrupts. And the way I think what's happening is that it's interacting specifically with cardiolipin within the bacteria to then disrupt its membrane, both outer and inner, and then ultimately killing it. We have some effects that we're seeing sort of downstream of affecting respiration and ATP, but also just that it's killing it. So it's taking advantage of multiple aspects of not only the biological consequences of just infection, but also just the nature of the molecule is being really cool. So this has applications for things like tuberculosis, which we know are contained in its own little vesicle. We know it's acidified. So it's one of those where it's like, we can help treat some of these diseases. It may not be the pan, like gram-negative, gram-positive, kill everything, but that might be more beneficial, right? Because you're not destroying your host microbiome. You're more targeting those specific infection sites. So as a drug, it's both good and bad in the way that it's great because it'll work for those specific infections. But if, like, I'm a pharmaceutical company, do I actually want to treat those infections? <laughs> you know, because right, it's right, sort right. of like uh, that, that cost-benefit analysis. But I mm -hmm. think if these drugs were to move forward, it would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And this is so much smarter than just, like, taking a bunch of molecules and seeing what sticks, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And that was, yeah, a, I think a huge trial for antibiotic discovery in general, right? From, like, the 60s, 70s, pushing forward yeah. to, like cephalosporins right, <laughs> whenever right. that was and maybe, so it's maybe like, this will sound bad but somehow I feel like in the 50s 60s 70s scientists had a lot more time on their hands because they were still doing like base level research like the kinds of things that we're researching now is all based on on the sort of foundations that were built by scientists in the the early to mid 1900s when we understood finally like that that other smaller organisms cause infection we we like a whole explosion of science happened as a result of that and now we're in we're going in so deep and technology has allowed us to understand far more detail than we ever have before so yeah in the 50s and 60s there were scientists who their entire job was just seeing what molecule worked and that was that was it and that's how we were able to test billions of compounds I want to give Caroline the floor because I saw her get so excited when you were talking oh, no. about JV1. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it, it's just, I had a story I wanted to tell. Is it the Alexander Jackson. Fleming story? It is, you should, it is. You should share it. I mean, I think Joe understands how much we worship Alexander Fleming, not only for his <laughs> discovering penicillin, but for warning everyone about antibiotic resistance. Yeah, the old man knew, the old man knew. Well, it's because I've listened to an audiobook about Alexander Fleming. And um, he himself didn't really see penicillin as his great invention. He saw lysosome as his great invention because that was the first thing and the first thing that like really showed um, specific, uh, you, you know, uh, killing of a speci specific uh, pathogen organism and not just everything. Because up until then you had just like been throwing stuff into a wound, wound that would be killing everything like Listerine or something like that. <laughs> Um, but so he, he discovered lysosome, he had a plate, and it was pretty much the same story as the way he later discovered penicillin. He had a, he had like an agar plate and then he had to, to take some mucus from his nose, put it down there, and he saw the, the clear rings around the colonies that showed that uh, they could kill uh, other uh, bacteria. Uh, and yeah, that was all great, and then after that he was like, okay, so is this 
magical thing other places in the body and he found out that it was even more prevalent in tears which makes sense because that's like where you have in, in your nose um, stuff can like get into your nose it's like a hole and you can get into your body and you need to kill bacteria in your nose and in your eyes so he discovered that there was a lot of lysosome in the eyes and especially in tears so to begin with, him and his uh, friend would just try to cry as much as they could. They're like, just like looking at pictures of sad puppies in the lab and just yeah. like bawling over auger plates. <laughs> but they reached a certain point where they were like, this is not sustainable. We need something else. <laughs> so being a product of his time and not really thinking too much about the ethical issues behind it, uh, he was like, hmm, so we need a lot of cheers. Where can we get that? Children cries a lot. Okay, sure, but it's hard for them to just cry on demand. Okay, so let's get children here and then let's just uh, beat them until they cry and collect their tears oh, for science. <laughs> he paid them a little bit, but still he was oh like beating God. children. I think we need for to take tears and science. I think we need to take Sir Fleming off of his pedestal. <laughs> this is not appropriate. <laughs> I'm sorry, no, but it was just like in the book. It was just like. Just like carrying on with the book, just like not stopping up a bit, like, hey, wait a second. Imagine like that news article, <laughs> like the advertisement where you'd have to be like, looking for children willing to be beaten. Tears will go towards <laughs> science. <laughs> One penny, a penny of beating. Yeah. <laughs> but then later he found out that uh, it was even more prevalent in egg whites, so they stopped beating Good children. Good call. So, um, yeah. Did he figure yeah. that out by eating in the lab again? Because that also I seems to be his thing. <laughs> I, I know that he um, he also um, he tried to look at uh, fluids from other animals than just humans um, and found out that lysosome was prevalent there too. But uh, yeah, I guess then he was like, hmm, eggs. I know that oxygen needs to get into eggs and like they need to preserve themselves some way. Or like, yeah, so yeah. Found out it was way better with the egg whites. So. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Good old Alexander Fleming. Dang, Fleming. In the name of science. Imagine, like, it actually ends up being super successful, and he talks about how, like, the key to his success was the tears of children, which is something I've always wanted to be able to say, but I never thought there was a way to, like, actualize this statement, so I thought it was an appropriate joke to make, but I guess it's not. It's so bad. It's so bad. Uh, yeah. That makes that was me just the story. That makes me think of Edison, where he's like electrocuting that elephant to like show that his technology Wait, was better. Oh yeah, so there was an elephant that like trampled like five people or something, a circus elephant. And then because he was trying to show his technology, like okay, I have DC current, let's show this off, and like how powerful it is, they electrocuted an elephant to death, and that was like a thing to do back in the day of like show it off. Whereas like Tesla was off being all crazy during that sort of. Uh, time where they were both fighting and showing one another like besting one another in their yeah. technology yeah, yeah. Yeah. Edison was just like oh I'll show him I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll show like him I'll murder this capable of yeah show him how powerful these currents are and it's like okay dude deeply <laughs> inappropriate I mean <laughs> dang I guess that sounds like beating children up, huh? it does yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the, so the elephant was like up for being killed anyway. Yeah, to, like, basically. Revenge the death of the. Okay, okay. Yeah, Still so, bad. Yeah, so Still it bad. I do not agree. I mean, but yeah. if it had to die anyway. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we could talk about it even being in the circus, but... Yeah, it didn't need to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. Of course it didn't. Of course it didn't. But I mean, I don't mean anything. Never mind. I'll, I'll stop here. Caroline is a vegan and she fights for the rights of animals. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but but, she, but I, also, I also fight for science. It's a, it's, so. a, it's a difficult balance to strike, apparently, especially historically. Sure, sure. Okay. Yeah. Joe, I wanted to, to, to like, do a complete U-turn and go back to what you were talking about earlier. Oh, um, yeah, of course. I wanted to ask how much you look at resistances to your antibiotics, or if your, your discoveries are somehow more resistant to the, the sort of emerging resistance we see for antibiotics that are designed to hit gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria. So that was one of our first avenues of attempted discovery was, uh, so a great way to figure out what an antibiotic does is to see how it develops resistance. So we tried to generate resistant mutants over a six month period I was doing this, where I was like taking a compet like every day, just having either an incremental shift or just moving them up from like a low concentration to an eventual high concentration. And I did that but I ended up only generating tolerant mutants, which is like the worst thing ever. Well, at least for an experimental purpose where it's like, uh, it means that they were able to adapt to the change in this slow incremental increase in concentration, but didn't actually generate a genetic shift. So it only changed expression as opposed to an actual mutation, which is like horrific after you've been doing it for six months, trying to generate this mutant and you don't do it. So it's great in the idea that it's extremely difficult to generate resistance to it, but it was sad in the way that it's like, oh man, now I have one less avenue to figure out what this is doing. But it makes a lot of sense now because we have a little bit more of an idea of what the target is, which is, uh, we think, anionic lipids with cardiolipin as a preference, meaning that they're negatively charged lipids, um, which, if you're a bacteria, it's very difficult to change the charge of your lipid, right? Like oh, I it, bet. <laughs> And its distribution, so it's one of those where it's like, it's a really great target uh, because of its, you know, innate thing in your uh, uh, system if you're a bacteria, but... Also, it's difficult to generate resistant mutants, but, yeah. Can you talk some more about the difference between tolerance and resistance? I don't actually think we touch on that, and I, I'm i even inclined to say that some of my experiments were tolerance rather than resistance, because I never looked at the genetic profile. So there's uh, ways you can test it before you, like, get your genome sequence and things like that. You, there's, like, an official metric. I don't remember the actual, like, equation for it, but it's essentially, like, you take what you think you have a resistant mutant, you put it back in uh, rich media broth, and then re-expose it to whatever agent you're trying to develop resistance to. Uh, and then if you're able to achieve essentially normal growth, you've generated a resistant mutant. But if you're basically anything less is tolerant. Um, but for us, it didn't grow at all. So it's like it was like highly resistant to 4x concentration uh, of our drug, or our minimum inhibitory concentration. So it's like, okay, cool, great. Take it back into LB so it changes all of its expression profiles again. Then when you put it in this exposure, it is just dead, essentially, mm -hmm. as it, so as it was the very first. Like step by step. Yes, exactly, which makes, which makes a lot of sense now because it's like, okay, they were able to change either their lipid composition or something to that effect, either sequester it. There's a bunch of different ways you could develop resistance. But um, 
yeah, it just ended up being just a tolerant mutant, which is like annoying. <laughs> but it, a, it, you know, well, yeah. go ahead. Does a similar thing happen in human contexts? Like, is it could there be a situation in which, or maybe maybe you can speak to like, we're always told finish your entire antibiotic uh, prescription, like when you get it from start to finish, and is that does that contribute to preventing the formation of tolerant strains? Yes, so I think this is a little more applicable in uh, livestock rearing, just because it, so even though, so technically you're not supposed to use antibiotics in the rearing of livestock anymore, according to the the FDA, but you can use it if one animal needs it, you can give it to everybody else. So there's like a modest loophole in the way that you can just say that there's an infection in one of them and still give it to all of them. So it still happens, it's still used a ton. So all of these animals on the feedlot will be getting these antimicrobials from essentially birth till death. Um, And during that time, this is perfect because it's like you're getting essentially waves of concentration of these antimicrobials. So they're either receiving them on like a continual basis where they're maintaining essentially a low level of this compound or they're receiving high and then low, high and then low, high and then low, which both of those situations are really great for generating resistance, but that's also very bad, right? So it's like you, uh, by having these different exposures, especially if you go high, low, high, low, high, low, um, you just give the bacteria an opportunity to change up some sort of target, depending on which drug you're using. And yeah, that situation can be really bad. But also the low consistent level of exposure can also be really bad depending on uh, what's happening in your bacterial state. Um, So depending on if they're increasing in their growth or maintaining their growth, if they're maintaining their growth, like at their stationary phase is what we call it, it's really bad because that's the time to like change your genetics up. It's a really easy time for the bacteria to do it because they're not focusing on growth, they're just focusing on sustaining themselves. And so yeah, there's, it can be really bad. (laughs) So that's exactly why they tell you to finish your prescription. But in those animals cases, they really never have an end. Um, So it just continues to go. So for us, it's important to finish it because you, Uh, the likelihood of each and each day having this high level of exposure killing these bacteria uh, is the probability of generating resistance goes down and that's why they give you a course for 10 days even though you're feeling better by the third day it's just sort of that now step down of making sure you kill each and every of those bacteria that are infecting you and typically they just have a faster growth rate which is why they try and extend that period for 10-ish days right Right, and if tolerance factors into it, they're, like, if you only take your antibiotic course for, like, the first three days, you feel better, then there's got to be some members of that population who are showing tolerance, and then they're going to repopulate, and then you're going to need a higher level, or higher uh, dosage of antibiotics to kill everything, which means your microbiome is also suffering more, which means you get C. diff, and it's it's just a horrible... <laughs> yeah, all of that. <laughs> yeah, And, then and of ha- course, this doesn't happen in every case. I'm catastrophizing a little bit, but it happens too often for comfort, so I'm sorry. We need to pay attention to this worst-case scenario. Yeah, I was going to say, it's definitely not worse. Like, this is a frequent case, depending on where you live. So in the U.S., it's definitely infrequent, just because we have access to great health care. We have access to clean water every day, right? But <laughs> limit Some that fecal oral route. Yeah, so it's one of those where it's like, yeah, depending on 
wh where you live, this can be an everyday problem that you're facing. So this is something that I know in the Pacific Islands is huge and gonna be a big problem, not only for how they disseminate antibiotics, they just have them all the time, but they also use uh, limited classes of antibiotics that are cheaper and more cost effective. So it's like you have the same mechanism of killing uh, and that's what you develop resistance to is that specific mechanism. Um, so if you run out of those antibiotics or you develop resistance to those antibiotics, you're in uh, worst case like every day. And that's where we're seeing all these superbugs come up and then of course as we've seen with COVID, just like because we can now transit across the world in a day, um, this could be a problem, especially if waters aren't cleaned depending on how people keep their hygiene, washing their hands, all of these things maintain their importance. Yeah, if anything, we can thank COVID for sort of bringing to the surface how quickly a pandemic can spread, how much it can change your way of life, and we just got to come together and thank the universe that this wasn't like super resistant gonorrhea or something. Like, Yeah, I think obviously the like aerial spread of like having it in your cough and stuff is a bigger thing, but like just... If antibiotic resistance maintains, this is going to be horrible because it's like the single greatest thing we have in terms of medicine. Like almost all of our medicines start with the basics of antibiotics. Like if you're going to do any surgery, you get an antibiotic. Like I heard I, it I was listening. the human lifespan. I mean, yeah, of course, because it's like, right, it's like a, a, something that would take you down for weeks, if not years. And I mean, salmonella, like if you there's like a five percent. If you get an intracellular infection, you will maintain that for the rest of your life. And it'll just keep disseminating into your bloodstream through your gallbladder, which is a bit weird. But one of those where it's like, it can, like, you're then affected forever. And it's one of those where it's like, even if you take antibiotics, just the nature of where they are, yeah. they're going to be there. Yeah, absolutely. So given how in intense this conversation got when we spoke about how, how dangerous and, and profound this issue actually is, Joe, do you have any thoughts about what kind of steps are necessary to mitigate the issue of antibiotic resistance, either at an individual level, at a federal level, global level? What do you think? Um, I think prevention is the first one. I mean, that's like obvious of like, if you can prevent these infections, it's going to be the best way to go because then you don't have to have the treatment at all. So that means, right, like healthy diet is a big one. We talked about microbiome. That means getting as many different veggies in your body as you can. Um, also, there's like a, uh, some thoughts of like eating more bitter things can be better for your microbiome. So like uh, we think about it uh, in terms of like burnt ash and things is sort of bitter, but also just like wild flowers and veggies that are available like around us, like a dandelion. You taste it, like you can eat it, they're edible. They're just like bitter, they're leaves, and that's supposed to have some compounds in there that are better for your microbiome. Uh, I mean, we can talk about that all day of like how good it is for your brain gut axis, how that can help stimulate all kind of great things. So I think that's the first one is just sort of stopping that. And then I think also clean water. I think that's a huge one for the world. I mean, we're still not there. We're not even there in the U.S., right? Flint, still an issue. So it's like <laughs> we need to think about that and how we're going to get clean water to people. But that also has its downstream consequences, right? Because then we're treating with so much chlorine, having all those issues. Um, but uh, I guess, so that's individual, I don't know, government level. I think it's 
doing what they're trying to do, right? Where it's like limit when you're using it and how you're using it. I think some interesting research is coming along is sort of when you develop resistances, you also develop susceptibilities. So because you've tuned your uh, a certain pathway uh, into a specific resistance, whether it's e-flexing out, changing the target, breaking down the target, often what you're also doing is creating a more susceptible nature uh, for yourself. So hopefully we'll have some of that a little bit more down the line uh, in terms of like when you get an infection, instead of giving you penicillin treatment, seeing if that fails, then going cephalosporin treatment, seeing if that fails. We need to develop some faster way of testing what sort of resistance it has um, so that we can give you the correct treatment. But, I mean, that comes with a whole host of healthcare changes, right? Of like, people want to get in, get a pill, and get out. So how do we address that when it's like, I'm gonna need a day to see what's resistant and then this will be better and people aren't gonna have that. So there needs to be some way of testing to make that a little bit more efficient so we can tell what's resistant and then try and give you something that it would likely be susceptible to. I know people are creating these like cool heat maps of like, if it's resistant to this, it might be susceptible to this. So it's one of those where it's like, it could be, it could be relatively easy, it just takes time and that's something that you know, people don't have enough of, um, I don't know, take your full course. <laughs> I, think, I, I think that's a big one because it's like we have, we have it and we have the ability to do it really well, but it's like, yeah, getting to those later end antibiotics, the like last use, it's like scary. Like to use that for a person, it's not great. The side effects are it's essentially a chemotherapy where it's like you're killing your own cells and you're killing the bacterial cells and hoping that you'll come out on top and it's one of those like well that's that's what we're usually joking about we're like hey like if, if antibiotics don't work anymore we're literally returning back to the like let's use arsenic and mercury to treat you and just cross our fingers and hope you survive you're like you're basically just poisoning everything and hoping that you're strong enough to outlive the bacteria yeah, and it's like, if we don't address this, we're essentially going back to those medical dark ages. Like, we won't be able to perform those surgeries, those chemotherapies, yeah. those anything for the things that we're facing now. It's like, you know, starting from square one, if we can't can't figure out a way to deal with this. And it's it's tough on the, like, just numbers level. When there's so many people, how do you, how do you address this? With there's so many different governments around the world, so many different everythings. Like, how do you how do you do this? And I think they're like this, and there's like, uh, it's a great way to do it, right? Telling people about it. But then I think there's also like larger governing bodies that are trying to disseminate this information just across the world. And it's like, I don't know, people need to know about it, but it's like, I don't know, I, people are more worried about like their economic situation than this thing that they can't yeah. see right, that's we're experiencing now. So it's one of those like, uh, I don't know, I don't have all the answers. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a challenge for sure, but I'm so glad that we asked you because we pretty much have been saying the same thing every week of like, yeah, prevention, but like, wash your hands and, and take your full course and don't use antimicrobial soap and, and don't buy, like we were touching on this a little bit, don't buy meat that has been raised with antibiotics. Unfortunately, like, there are other loopholes that allow farms to not mention that they're using antibiotics, and it's similar to what you said of like, if they claim that one animal on their farm was sick, then they don't have to report that the animals were raised with antibiotics because it was, they were treating an infect, right? So it's, it's complicated. And I think that that's where like the government intervention should come in. But I also think that education can lead us to demand this kind of behavior from 
you know, the people who are providing us food, the people who are providing us healthcare. That's why I think this education piece is is such a key part of the whole puzzle. Um, you know, before before this this podcast recording, we were all laughing about how we just decided to start a podcast and it just happened and we have a guest. So with that, Joe, thank you so much for giving us credibility in our podcast by allowing us to talk to you about antibiotic resistance. We super appreciate your being here and, and everything that you offered. We put out podcasts every week to teach you about the societal implications of microbiology and health. Keep up with us wherever you get your podcasts. Joe, that means you get to listen to this um, when it releases in a couple of weeks um, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. I'm sure there's others, but I just don't, I'm not familiar with them because they're not the, the, the big CEO champions of podcasts right now. Um, you can also keep up with us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram at CU underscore armor. We also meet every Tuesday at 2.30 Mountain Daylight Time to do this, but with no filter, and you're welcome to join us. You can email or DM us for the Zoom link. Email us at armor at colorado.edu. If your community has unique needs, we encourage you to start your own chapter of Armor. To learn more, visit our website at arclabs.org forward slash armor. And that's it. Joe, thank you again. Yeah, of course. And that's it. That's been Armor on the Air. Thank you.